Thank you so much for joining our Gen Church Wa podcast. We are a community of everyday people committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. It's 2022. We have so many exciting events, gatherings, and opportunities for you around Generations Church. If you'd like to learn more about these opportunities, these events, these gatherings, head over to mygenerations.church to check them out. So what does it mean to be spiritual? How does followership of Jesus look in an era of postmodernism and deconstruction? We're getting back into our series on 1 Corinthians called Masterclass, where the Apostle Paul will help us navigate our cultural moment. Let's respond to the scripture and spirit together. Uh, Today, Kyle is going to continue in our Masterclass series. Um, We've been going through that for the last few weeks, and today's scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 11, and we're reading 2 through 16. So buckle up, because we are going to be up here reading for a minute. So <laughs> I'm so glad that you always keep me in your thoughts and that you are following the teachings I passed on to you. But there is one thing I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. A man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying, but a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head, for this is the same as shaving her head. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. But since it is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut or her head shaved, she should wear a covering. A man should not wear anything on his head when worshiping, for man is made in God's image and reflects God's glory, and women reflects man's glory. For the first man didn't come from woman, but the first woman came from man. And man was not made for women, but woman was made for man. For this reason, and because the angels are watching, a woman should wear a covering on her head to show she is under authority. But among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from man, Every other man was born from a woman, and everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves, is it right for a woman to pray to God in public without covering her head? Isn't it obvious that, it is, that it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair? And isn't long hair a woman's pride and joy? For it has been given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say that we have no other custom than this and neither do God's other churches. Will you guys bow with me? God, we just thank you for our time here this morning, whether it's in person or online. Lord, we thank you for people like Vin and Tara to be a part of this family. Lord, we we are thankful that you brought them to us. Lord, and we just ask right now that you just speak through Kyle, that you open up his heart and you open up our hearts to receive your message this morning, God. And we just thank you for the love that you have for us, in your name, amen. Welcome to Masterclass Week 15. Someone's keeping track. There we go. Um, So this week, as Richard read, we're beginning a new section of Paul's letter to Corinthians. And he is transitioning from where they ingest and what they ingest into their bodies to the external reality when they gather together. And in this open section, 
He's talking about hair covering, covering, like praying, prophesying. And if you're like me, sometimes when you read the Bible, especially in sections like this, you're like, okay, like, what's, what's going on? Like, this is weird. This is confusing. I'm not sure I understand. But thankfully, we get a journey through passages like this together. You don't have to come up with an answer all on your own, but we get to read and we get to decipher and we get to discuss the context together. Because in many ways, Paul has been providing examples for how the Corinthians, in their culture, in their context, can live out their faith in everyday life. And Paul is making this transition from kind of thinking about our Monday through Saturday to when the believers gather together, whether it's in homes, um, in our case in this facility, as how we can interpret that, and then how we gather together as the church. And as they become what they are in Christ, corporately, they will be God's alternative to Corinth within Corinth. And in doing so, again, I'll say this, Paul writes one of the most difficult passages of Scripture in the whole Bible. It's mainly because Paul was trying to help the Corinthians live their faith in Corinth. He's writing to a specific people in a specific time in a specific place. And so if we simply take Paul's commendation to the Corinthians and say, well, this is how it should be for us, we neglect and misappropriate the principle that stems from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that Paul is applying in this situation. Even as we read the passage, Paul makes some statements that are applications for this church based on their situation that are not to be readily applied today. But we must retrace Paul's thinking so that we can understand the principle and then reapply his principle to our lives today. What I'm hoping to do during our time is to walk ourselves back, retrace those steps, find the principle, and then begin to reapply it to our lives today. This is one of kind of my hobby horses. I get on a soapbox every so often and talk about reading your Bible is really important. And not just important so that you can be a scholar, but so that you can learn to read the Bible in such a way that you understand the context, you can make some observations, you can discern a meaning, and then you can apply your faith in everyday ways, wherever, whenever you find yourself. And so as we read Paul's application here, we must retrace to that meaning. So previously on, in chapters 8 through 10 in the letter, Paul has been dealing with the issue of Christian liberty in light of both true knowledge, caring love for one's fellow believers, and concern for living and acting in ways which build up others in the church. That is, Christian freedom with respect to rules and regulations is not an absolute freedom. Christian freedom based on the liberating grace of God is freedom for the other, for the other's good, for the growth of community and love, faith, and hope. Said last week, edification over gratification. What builds up over personal pleasure. What seeks the others good over what we get out of it. And Paul sums up the discussion with whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Meaning, 
you are not your own in your everyday life and when you gather with other believers. So here's the rundown of this next section. Chapters 11 through 14 talk about the gathering. So we're making a shift from that everyday life of faith to, okay, so if we're going to be God's alternative here in Salmon Creek, if we're going to display God's goodness and His glory right here in our time and place, then we must be an alternative type of community that properly represents God, not just Monday through Saturday, but also when we gather. And so here's the rundown. Paul's going to begin with concerns about propriety with regard to appearance in the context of public worship. That's what we're talking about today. This is followed by a severe criticism of their misunderstanding of the nature of communion or the Lord's Supper and its consequences. And then finally, Paul addresses the use and misuse of gifts of the Spirit in chapters 12 through 14. And in each of these situations, the principle for Christian action is laid down in, verse, in chapter 10, verses 31 through 33. And that must be kept in mind. Whatever you do, when we get together, when we find ourselves together, we must do it with in mind of how are we displaying the image and the glory of God. And as N.T. Wright has argued, Paul being, or being grasped by the gospel, being grasped by the good news of Jesus' love and grace means worshiping the true God and so reflecting this God by becoming a more complete human being. Genuine humanness resulting from true worship. You've heard me apply over the last several weeks, and if you missed it, go ahead and go back and watch it, that true worship is a response to who God is and what He has done, which means we are saying that God is true and He is good, and we are saying and singing things that are accurate of who God is and what He has done. And what Paul's vision is, what he is leading the Corinthians to do is better reflect that truest version of God thus being expressed in our humanity in everyday ways. To express God's re renewed humanity, specifically in these chapters. And of course, chapter 15, as we get to the end of the letter, will bridge the gap from the incomplete renewal of humanity experienced before bodily resurrection. And with that ultimate and complete renewal and restoration that will be experienced only when we experience resurrection like that of the Lord for whom we wait. But we don't like to wait. We, don't, we like convenience. We like things to be hurried up. And this is the problem with the Corinthians. They were unwilling to wait. And so what they were saying is, they were taking the perspective of eternity, a new heaven and a new earth, being fully with God, with Jesus, with all renewed in humanity, where there's no tear, sickness, or pain, and saying, well, let's figure out how to rush that back into our gathering time. And rather than do it in appropriate ways, they were misappropriating it. They rushed to the end meaning that they were disregarding a cultural norm. They were disregarding their context where the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus needed to be applied so people could best understand who Jesus is and why he loves them and why they matter to God. And so what he's saying is, 
when he, in terms of head coverings. And as he discusses this, what he's saying is, you can't just dismiss some cultural norms. There were some cultural norms in their day and age for having head coverings for women and no head coverings for men. And some scholars will argue that it's not a head covering he's talking about here. And we kind of get a glimpse of that in the passage. It's kind of difficult to completely understand. Is it, is it something on top of the head? Is it hair? What's actually being referred to? Regardless of the issue and specific to the nature, is it hair or is it something on top of the head? What the Corinthians were essentially saying is I'm not sure if my sex or my gender really matters that I have the right to choose my appearance for what suits me, even if I have a seemingly good justification for doing so, such as freedom and equality in Christ. And Paul's point is that you're misapplying the truth of full equality and freedom in Christ and disregard how God has uniquely made them and the time and place which they lived. Let me say that again. When we fail to understand our context, when we fail to understand the moment in which we live and show how God needs to show up in a loving and tangible way through us to others, when we just disregard what is happening in our context and in our culture, there's a chance, and in Paul's case, there's a likelihood that we misapply and we might even weaponize a good intention to the detriment of people understanding the love and grace of Jesus. Meaning we cannot just disregard certain norms. In fact, we must rightly understand that every human being has value, dignity, and worth, has full equality and freedom in Christ. And out of that, figure out how to express that and in this case, specifically express it when they gather. And Paul wants them to have a complete story. And what they were doing was trying to live outside their time. For the results were excarnational instead of incarnational. Meaning they were trying to live at the end of time rather than living in the midst of time. And this was affecting their public witness to be God's alternative society within Corinth, specifically the way in which they gathered. And they are misapplying the truth by taking the focus during their gatherings off the rescuer and directing it to the rescued. What they were doing is when they gathered is by disregarding a cultural norm is they were saying, look at us. Look at what we can do. Look at how we can behave because of our freedom in Christ, because of our rights. And instead, when you gather as the church, when we gather as the church, the object of our affection is not to be ourselves, but is to be the one true and living God, the rescuer, the lover, the God who created you uniquely, fearfully, and wonderfully made. The last couple of weeks, I've been at my kids' soccer games on Saturday afternoons. And while there, you notice, is as the kids are out on the field playing, there are a lot of voices shouting at the kids. Kick, pass, run, score! And the coach is out there on the sideline trying to get the kids to do. But there's competing voices. 
Because you've got parents in the stands yelling, run, pass, kick, shoot. And the kids, there's moments in the game where you can see the kid get kind of paralyzed. Who do I listen to? Do I listen to my coach or to my parents? Because both have roles and responsibilities. And they're in real time trying to figure out who do I listen to. God gives us parents to, to guide and exhort. And he also gives us coaches to guide, to help us learn fundamentals. And so you can see kids get paralyzed in fear. Because, but in that setting, it's the coach that's supposed to be in charge. And another, the parent, is in charge. And every day, we find ourselves in circumstances and situations where we have competing voices being yelled at us. And we have to decipher, who do we listen to? When is it appropriate to listen to a fellow brother and sister in Christ give us good godly encouragement? When is it appropriate to, to just truly take the Bible as truth, as a word, speaking into us and do exactly as it says? When do we need to listen and respond to the Spirit in this moment in a heated or contentious situation? And every day we hear all their voices such as media, social media, past experiences, well-intended people, our own fears or failures or insecurities. And sometimes the loudest voice is often our own. And what Paul is doing is he's trying to help them reorder the voices in their life and understand the voices that they should be listening to when living out their new humanity. And Paul seems concerned to shift the problem from one of individual freedom to one of relational responsibility. And voice one, that Paul wants them to understand that they have listened to, and it's good that they listen to it, is his own. And in a letter where he addresses all kinds of problems, he's like, hey, you're at least trying to listen to me, and I can applaud and I can appreciate you for that. In verse 2, he says, thank you for remembering my words. But here's the reality is Paul can't be with them every single time they gather. He's not with them now. And so they need a deeper and more profound voice. And so what he wants them to remember is not just his words, but the one who gave him the words to say. Amen. And that is the words of God. Amen. Spoken to Paul and in the spirit he shares with them. And so as Paul kind of face palms their choice of applying his words or misapplying his words, he wants to have them understand the greater story. At a pivotal moment in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, Professor Dumbledore makes a poignant request. Severus, please. Up to this point, we do not know whether Severus Snape as a double agent for Dumbledore or for the murderous antagonist Voldemort. I said the name. <laughs> now, Snape's loyalty is tested. Dumbledore is surrounded by enemies and he pleads for help. And Snape kills him. And the scene is devastating. <laughs> hey, it's, it's been 20 years. Maybe you saw the movie. Maybe you read the book. And if you're like me, when I read the book, I'm like, what just happened? 
And we never liked Snape, though. But we hoped, beyond hope, okay, I never <laughs> quite super find him, but, but we hoped, Snape, while you're, you're rough around the edges, while you're a little bit grim, while you're a little bit serious, while you seem a little passive-aggressive towards Harry, we hoped beyond hope that he was going to be Dumbledore's man. And now, in this moment, Snape's betrayal of his mentor is complete. But it's not until the last Harry Potter book that we realize how wrong we were. When Harry extracts memories from Snape's dying mind and pours them into this magical pensive, where one can dive into another's past, we discover Snape's love for Harry's mother, Lily, was the guiding principle of his life. We see Snape's anguish as Lily is murdered by Voldemort and how Snape henceforth commits himself to Dumbledore. Dumbledore tells Snape that he is dying from a slow, working, and irreversible curse. And we hear Snape reluctantly pledge to kill him when the moment comes. And suddenly we see Dumbledore's plea and Snape's actions in a new light. When we know the beginning and the end of the story, the meaning of Severus, please, is reversed. See, to understand the Christian account of male and female, we must gaze into the pensive of the whole Bible. If we read texts only in light of our own presuppositions, they will make little sense. But if we dive into the panorama of salvation history, the biblical view of man and woman assumes new meaning. From creation to the fall, to the rescue that Jesus provides, to the hope of new creation. It provides a perspective on what it means to be fully human, precisely as you are in this moment. As with Snape, the key to understanding the Bible's view of men and women is a story of relentless love, of God's relentless love to you, to move on behalf of you. And it begins in the creation story, which is a story that Paul wants us to have complete view in mind. And so when we think about sex and gender, we instinctively, because we're product of our own time and own place, we think of culture, biology, and the backdrop of human history. The, the misapplication, the war, the trauma, the weaponization that, that subjugates all different types of people for different reasons at the means of, of power and pride and prestige and control and comfort. And what happens is when we approach Sex and gender. All of these voices flood our mind. And what Paul wants us to hear is the most dominant voice, that of God in this profound way. That we need to go back to understand who God is and what he has done. Because God is not constrained by biology. Rather than creating sex in either sense of the word, he could have made humans capable of asexual reproduction, like copperhead snakes, when the feelings takes them. But God created male and female humans as a living metaphor. As the Bible begins, God creates all humanity, men and women, in his image and in his likeness. This language evokes three relationships that shed light on our status before God as a child resembling a parent, a deputy representing a king, and a temple statue representing a God. The image language applies to male and female together. And God charges his humans to fill the earth, to rule over it, to be his representatives. So we could say that God gives people a three-orbed role to rule, 
to relate, and to create. You have a human job description to rule, to represent God, to relate to others in healthy ways, and then create with God in this world. And we learn more about the connection between humanity through a strange description of God making woman out of man's side. In Genesis 2, woman is bone of man's bone and flesh of his flesh. There are different but fundamentally linked. I love the imagery. A rib out of his side. They are equals before God. They are companions before God. All humanity stands fully equal with each other under the lordship of God. And the next verse hammers the point home. And when it gives reference to marriage. And sex joins man and woman in intimate relationship as they become fruitful and multiply. And as we think about this lived out, as we see this represented in our world, it, the God who exists in utter intimacy with love across differences, love is at the core of his being, creates image bearers who are of the same essence but different and calls them into one flesh unity. See, when you step into Christ, you have access to that, what it means to be fully human. To know what it looks like to rule on behalf of God, to relate to others in healthy ways, and to co-create with God. See, that is the call of discipleship in many ways, is to help people understand what it looks like to live out God's image in their everyday things of life. When we create, when we pass on, when, when we help people understand what it looks like to live everyday faith, family, and mission, what we are doing is we are, helping, we are reproducing God's character and priorities into others, which means you can't do it alone. You can't do it in isolation. As you struggle to figure out, how do I make my faith real in everyday life? You don't do it in isolation. You do it with others. But what happens is in Genesis 3, things go horribly wrong. And we experience the consequences every day. And verse 3 says, But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of every one, and God is the head of Christ. But we imbue our own definitions into this word head. Meaning we often think of head as chief or authority over in charge of. But this is not the case for this metaphorical word in Koine Greek. The use of head instead has a sense of origin or source or consummation. And this seems to be corroborated by the two explanation verses in 8 and 9. The only place where one of these relationships is to be picked up further in Paul's argument. It's a message of teamwork. It's a message of support. And there he explicitly states that man was the original source of woman. This, Paul's concern, is not hierarchical. It's not an org chart. Who has authority over whom? But relational, where the unique relationships that are predicated on one's being the source of the other's existence. What is happening is here, is Paul is hearkening back to that creation story, meaning that the source of everything is God. The man would refer to Adam and the woman to Eve, thus the man is a source of the woman's life, but the very... But verse 12 makes this plain once again. This is only part of the story. In a much more significant way, all things, both man and woman, come from God. Amen. You exist because of a man and woman. But men and women exist 
because of God. And so the best translation from the data discussed above, it would seem best to translate 11.3. And I'm not attempting to change the translation here. I'm just trying to help provide some clarity. If I had to say it in my own words, it says, I want you to understand that Christ is a source of man's being in creation. That man is a source of woman's being in procreation. Man and woman together. And God is a source of Christ's being incarnation. See, God sent Jesus on our behalf to help us understand what it's like to be truly human. And so when you pray and when you prophesy for the good of the church and for the community, we need men and women. We need all people. In this moment, what Paul is saying is is the reason he's getting into the head covering issue is because there's this thing that says, well, maybe... If, if men have the power, maybe we should all just kind of look and act and become more like men. Or in another scenario, maybe we need to all think, act, and look and become like women because maybe they have the power or the control or the authority. What Paul is saying here in this moment is when we gather, when people pray and when they prophesy, and prophesy is just speaking what God is, who he is on behalf of God. It's not foretelling, it's forthtelling what is true about God. What I am doing up here is a version of what we can understand as prophesy. But what I am saying in this moment is that we need men and women together to accurately communicate something about who God is and how he exists and how he moves within the world. And so it's not a hierarchy. It's not one is better than the other. It's of teamwork. It's of God has uniquely made you. And so stop trying to run and become something you're not. When when men in this situation, when they were trying to remove head coverings or put on head coverings or manipulate the situation, all they're doing is trying to chase after an image that they thought they should be. And in reality, Paul is saying, stop chasing, stop running, be precisely who God has created you to be because the church needs you. The cult community of faith needs you, all of you your stories, your backgrounds. That's why we try to do this family time, so that we can help each other understand that God has uniquely made you. And what we do when we try to change ourselves in unhealthy ways, again, we're to become like Christ. We're to see his character and priorities lived out in us, through us. But when we treat ourselves as plastic, when we treat ourselves as clay that we can make into our own image and hands rather than be made into the image that God is creating in us. What we do is we actually slap God in the face and say, you didn't make me beautiful. You make me wonderful. You didn't make, give me the gifts and the passions. I, I wish I was someone else. I appreciated Richard's question earlier because it was kind of a little bit of a trick question. Almost asking, if you could change your name, what would you change it to? Here's the reality is God knows you. He made you. He named you. He loves you. And we do ourselves a disservice when we try to co-create in our own lives something that's not us. And we do it in insidious ways, ways that we seemingly label as good. Become who you are in Christ. Allow Christ's character and priorities of love and other sinners to come out into your life. And so don't shrug off how God has made you. Don't shrug off your past experiences. Don't, don't shrug off 
the gender that you are. Don't just simply shrug off the sex that God made you. And in this moment, Paul is not talking about, there's, there's a whole litany of issues that we could talk that are relevant to our culture today, and I don't have time to go into all of them. But what we do is, as I say this, hear from me. May we not just be willy-nilly to just disregard how God has made us. May we, together, may we sit with each other and listen and learn and ask questions and see value in each other. Because the moment that we stop seeing value in each other, it's very tempting to stop seeing value in yourself. And that is why we need the church together. When we gather, what Paul is saying is make sure we don't contribute to the problem of valuing each other less than the world. Because you all know this. Your bosses, your coworkers, even friends and family who aren't Christians, or maybe even be Christians, don't always value you the way that you feel you should be valued. The church should be the first and foremost place where we can look at each other in the eyes and say, you are valued, you are loved. I see God's work in your life. He's made you creative. He's made you athletic. He's made some of you lighter and some of you darker. He's made some of you taller, some of you shorter. And that just be okay with that and value that. And I could go into a whole un- other types of descriptors. And so what the gathering is supposed to do is bring us into alignment with God and strengthen our attachment to Him. It's retelling the story that should shape our lives so that when we live out faith in our everyday life, the most dominant story that we tell ourselves, that we tell others, is not others that you should change to be more likable or more approving or to get more comfort or to get more pleasure, but know you are first loved and out of that love, you can find a security and a significance that is unparalleled because you live in relationship with a creator, God. This is why Charles and I have regular conversations about songs we sing at Generations. Because the songs and the things that we do together when we gather are really important. It's about telling the big story of creation to fall to the rescue and redemption of Jesus and the hope of new creation. We need to tell ourselves that story again and again, lest we forget, lest we even self-justify in good ways that we think, oh, I'm applying this well, and we actually sabotage the work that God is doing in our life. And so Paul is really not trying to focus too much on the covering while he applies it in this way. He's trying to get them to remember that they are to tell an alternative story to the world. And when they get caught up and they think they should change, when they should put coverings on or take coverings off or cut their hair or not cut their hair, what they're doing is they're starting to play into the world's games. Rather, they should recognize the norm. They should assess their context and their moment and seek to live faithfully so that they can tell the truth of the love and the grace of Jesus to others. To not put up barriers where people will distance themselves from Jesus, but actually remove them so that people can move towards Jesus. And so what Paul is attempting to do is show how the story of God is lived out. And this is a theme that will continue when he talks about spiritual gifts, when he talks about communion. 
A recent movie reference has this one-liner. It says, if you sit in the question, the answer will find you. Here's the good news. Is we don't have to wait on the answer to living life well find us. The answer was sent to us. But have we opened ourselves up to ask the question? Sometimes we put a plan together before we even understand the problem. We think we are going to do certain things. We put a plan for our life together before we even consider, God, what do you want to do in me? And what do you want to do through me? And we need help living this well. Very seldom you will hear me say language that says invite someone to church. But you will hear me say things like gather with God, gather with a few, and gather with many. So that you can live your everyday faith, family, and mission well. Practice listening to each other. Practice asking questions. Seek to understand your differences and your backgrounds and what makes you unique so that we can help each other identify where God is at work and then also point each other to becoming more like Christ, not more like Kyle. We do ourselves a disservice when we say, Dress like a certain someone, be like a certain someone, laugh like a certain someone, tell jokes like a certain someone. No, be precisely you. In fact, don't just be precisely you with, of the you that you have in your mind. Become the you that God had in mind. And you can become the you that God had in mind when you tell yourself the story, when others tell you the story of God's love and saving grace, that he has made you, he has created you. And so stop self-sabotaging and robbing ourselves of the very place God has created for us in the family. Stop settling. Stop trying to co-create your own life independent of God and let's do this thing together. A person who is more concerned with where they sit at the dinner table forgets that they are even at the dinner table and may even forget to enjoy the meal. And some of you are so obsessed with what you don't have that when you walk into work on Monday, rather than live in a relationship with God and bring out His authority and rule where you work, your God of safety, rightness, approval, significance, ease, robs you from the very thing you seek. When you gather, when we gather, we portray a glimmer of the new creation reality that our world longs for. So the band's going to come up, and we're going to sing, and we're going to respond. We're going to take communion. We are going to do some of those movements, and each and every movement is really important because we're telling ourselves the story. Man, you guys can definitely go ahead and start coming up. Because we have so many voices in our world and in our lives that want to pave a way for us to justify, for us to to self-create for ourselves. And in doing so, when we play that game, we pollute the world. And we want to contribute to its cleansing by being cleansed, by living cleansed, by becoming more like Christ and pointing to an alternative reality that is first found in Jesus.
it seems natural to spin any narrative back towards ourselves in an attempt to carve out a place for ourselves. The gathering is a place where we can say each and every person is wanted, welcomed, and valued. And so that's what it starts by bringing out different gifts, skills, and abilities, telling different stories to do that well together. So let me pray, and I'll invite you to stand, and we'll sing together. God, you are good. You love us. God, in a text where it's talking about head coverings and whose glory is whose and, and who influences who, God, it can so often we can get bogged down in, well, what's right? What's wrong? God, in this moment, I pray that people know that they should live and understand to do everything for your glory and that they represent your glory to the world, to the people that they find themselves in relationship with, that they are loved and valued. And when we sing these songs, when we live out our faith, may we be people who point towards the beautiful and true story of Jesus stepping out of heaven, moving towards us, dying on the cross for us, and raising victoriously so we might have the hope of a new reality, of a new life, of a new world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.